This program deals with themes of an adult nature and is intended for a mature audience. The very word secrecy is repugnant in a free and open society. And we are, as a people, inherently and historically opposed to secret societies, to secret oaths, and to secret proceedings. Our differences worldwide would vanish if we were facing an alien threat from outside this world. We must guard against the military-industrial complex. Exopolitics, paranormal phenomena, and deep analysis of current world events. From somewhere in the desert, between Area 51 and Roswell, blasting across the planet, the Manticore Network proudly presents Fairy Tales. Because the truth will set you free. Headline edition, July 8, 1947. The Army Air Forces has announced that a flying disc has been found and is now in the possession of the Army. I'm as bad as hell, and I'm not going to take this anymore! The power they took from the people will return to the people. And so long as men die, liberty will never perish. Soldiers, don't fight for slavery, fight for liberty! The only thing we have to fear is fear itself! Sooner or later, though. You always have to wake up. Be skeptical, but don't close your mind. Greetings to everyone around the world, and a warm welcome to another edition of Veritas, alternative media for discerning minds. I'm your host, Mel Fabregas, and I sincerely thank you for joining me once again. And if this is your first time, make yourself at home. I want to thank all our members for your loyalty and support. Tonight's special guest is Dr. C.B. Scott Jones, a retired fighter pilot, an officer with the Office of Naval Intelligence, who spent 30 years in the intelligence field overseas. He has been involved in government research and development projects for the Defense Nuclear Agency, Defense Intelligence Agency, and Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency, DARPA. He is also a former aide to Senator Claiborne Pell, who has had a long-standing interest in UFOs. We hear about the topics of black ops, ETs, and the metaphysical, but we hardly hear it from a true insider. Tonight's show gives new meaning to the expression, things happen for a reason. There are no coincidences, and Dr. Scott Jones will be with us shortly. To listen to tonight's full show, become a member 
Just go to our website, VeritasShow.com, click on the subscribe button, and receive instant access. Don't wait any longer. For only $7.95 per month, you can listen to all of our material, hundreds of hours, in CD audio quality. And take Veritas with you wherever you go. Subscribe today. And visit the Veritas store, where you can purchase our 8GB USB drives with Seasons 1 or 2, filled with bonus material. Or even MMS. What is MMS? Go to the past shows and listen to Jim Humble's interview. It's better to have it and not need it, than need it and not have it. And if you need to get in touch with me, click on the contact button of our website, and also join me on Facebook. And now, get ready to hear the life story from someone truly from the inside, a former naval intelligence officer who tried to persuade even the highest government officials about preparing the nation for contact. He tried and will continue to pursue this goal until the end. As I said at the beginning, we hear a lot about the topic of black ops, the metaphysical and extraterrestrials from third parties. But tonight, you will hear it from a true insider. Dr. Scott Jones is coming up next. This is Mel Fabregas, and you're listening to Veritas. Don't go anywhere. Dr. C.B. Scott Jones is a retired U.S. Navy commander, pilot, teacher, and humanist who spent half of his life working abroad in Navy intelligence post before serving as special assistant to the late Senator Claiborne Pell, with whom he co-founded the Human Potential Foundation. Jones is formulating a university program called PEACE, the Peace and Emergency Action Coalition for Earth, to engender discussion and readiness or when cosmic cultures meet. The name of a two-year project he completed with Lawrence Rockefeller funding aimed at assessing the implications, preparations, and responses for the time when there is no ambiguity about the understanding that higher intelligences from cosmic cultures are meeting. The name C.B. Scott Jones is both obscure to many, a casual UFO buff, yet widely known among deep seekers of the ufological and parapsychological communities. His work for Senator Claiborne Pell 
investigating paranormal phenomena, and his briefing of President Clinton's science advisor on behalf of Lawrence Rockefeller are the stuff of legend, and yet they are fact. He is the founder of the Human Potential Foundation and the Center for Applied Anomalous Phenomena. He supported the Fund for UFO Research, served on the board and as president of the American Society for Physical Research, and served as board member for Atlantic University, a division of ARE, the Edgar Cayce Organization, the Association for Research and Enlightenment. He also helped with the Treatment and Research of Experience Anomalous Trauma Conference at Virginia Tech that brought together many in the UFO, alien abduction, and paranormal research fields. These, and a lifetime of other anomalous experience, make Dr. Cecil B. Scott-Jones an extraordinary guest for tonight's show, and he will straightforwardly reveal all kinds of topics, ranging from Black Ops, E.T., and the metaphysical. Topics we've heard about, but hardly from an insider. And directly from Kerrville, Texas, I would like to introduce, for the first time on Veritas, Dr. Scott Jones. Hello, Dr. Jones, and welcome to Veritas. How are you? I am fine, Mel. Thank you very much. My pleasure. And may I refer to you as Scott? Of course. Thank you. For those around the world who may not know about you, I doubt, give us some background of yourself and tell us how you went from decorated military officer and, and war hero to advocating for peace and contact with the visiting others. And we'll explain why you call extraterrestrials the visiting others. Well, I think uh, the simple and, of course, the uh, uh, the obvious to me explanation for this is that uh, the 30 years that I spent in, in the military, and uh, particularly the combat uh, phase of that early in the career during the Korean War, um, it was it was obvious to all of us involved in this that, that this is a fairly stupid way to solve problems. And uh, but we were disciplined and young and eager, and uh, and had good equipment and good training, so we did our work. And um, it was uh, unfortunately successful uh, in destruction and death, uh, both to uh, what who we call the enemy and to ourselves. But I don't think anyone walks away from combat experience uh, without deep reflection uh, if they survive it. And uh, so that is what I think is a fairly obvious motivating factor to think, well, if problem solving by violence uh, is not terribly effective, uh, and but terribly expensive uh, in, in blood and treasure, uh, what can we do? Uh, and I, so I stayed with that thought for many years. You know, my, my current board members uh, uh, have told me uh, independently and now together when we when we meet that uh, my the 30 years in the military was perhaps an overlong apprenticeship to get involved in peace work. Uh, that perhaps a smarter guy would have cut it in half and get down to doing what uh, he could do for peace and lessen that time. But, Mel, the, the reality is that uh, I was learning uh, a number of things. And just to give you an example, when I was in the intelligence directorate at Stuttgart, uh, Germany, uh, as part of the U.S. Um, uh, European Command, 
Um, we had a brilliant uh, boss there, a four-star Air Force uh, general, um, who was really quite unusual. And uh, he came up, uh, you know, this was at the very beginning. Uh, this was before PowerPoint or any of the, uh, the well-known and well-used uh, uh, applications. Uh, he challenged us at one meeting. Uh, I was representing uh, my directorate, which was uh, of target intelligence. He said, you know, when uh, CODELs, the congressional delegations, come here, uh, as they do frequently and bringing their families, uh, that's a great opportunity for us. I always have a list of things uh, that I want to bring up to them, and they're very generous in listening to me. Uh, but I want to maximize that time. Could you guys come up with some sort of a little pony show that would set the scene so that I certainly get their attention and uh, we ended up uh, end up with uh, what we think we deserve and certainly need? And so we did, and I contributed to the, the target intelligence component of that. Uh, the first time that he, I was in uh, in the back of the of, of the war room. Uh, for the first uh, congressional delegation that got that. And it was a gangbusters. It was, you know, literally a jaw-dropping experience. Um, very slickly, he started off, he said, well, gentlemen, I'm glad to see you again. Um, you're always welcome here in Stuttgart. Uh, I'd like to present something to you. It'll take about seven minutes. He knew exactly how long it would take, well-rehearsed. Uh, that shows you the current situation. It's sort of like a little visual war game for you. And we had it rigged so we only had to hit one button, and the, the lights went down, and then the backlit great displays uh, came on, and uh, literally uh, it walked through with voiceover, uh, an attack by the, the Soviet uh, and uh, Warsaw, uh, Warsaw Pact forces, the massive tax coming through the Folder Gap, uh, NATO forces retreating and fighting until the voiceover says at this point, uh, NATO commanders realize that release of nuclear weapons is required, and that request is made of the President of the United States. And then, boom, the lights come on. And uh, <laughs> it was awesome. And you know, Mel, what I got from that was, you know, someday I needed to use something like this as powerful as it is for war, for peace. And that was the genesis, the beginning of what I have created, the Peace Room, which several universities around the world have adopted. And we'll definitely uh, discuss this. Uh, you working with the with another Veritas veteran, a good friend of the show, Neil Freer. Uh, we'll talk about this later in the show, but I want to go in steps uh, in chronological order because right. I, I know there was an event in your life that's still very emotional to you. And unfortunately, perhaps some people had to lose their lives in order for you to do what you do now. So if you could tell us what happened. there Was, it, was this in the Korean War Theater? Well, yeah, um, there were a number of those. Can you be a bit more specific, Mel? Yes, uh, there was a fa the, sure. there was a family that uh, unfortunately lost their life as you were in the area. 
Tell us about yeah. that. Well, the you know this was the first time that uh, jets were involved in in, uh, in in combat since the limited use by uh, by German jets at the very end of World War II. Right. And of course, the Allies did not have a counterpart. Uh, but now the Navy, uh, the Air Force had uh, the generation, the F-86 Sabre. Uh, the Navy uh, was a generation behind with the straight wing. Uh, uh, I was flying the F-9F Panther, uh, uh, Grumman product. Uh, and the Navy really had no experience using jets in, in combat. They couldn't carry a heavy bomb load. The F-86 was superior uh, to the what the Navy had, and a and a match for the MiG-15, which we were running into. So reasonably and logically and correctly, the Air Force got the mission uh, to engage the the MiG-15s, and we had to figure out what else to do. Well, we soon found out that low-level, uh, long-range reconnaissance. Uh, was a, a great mission uh, for for the jets, and so at least uh, 20% of what we flew uh, were those long-range uh, intelligence gathering missions, and it was on one of these missions. Now we control the air, uh, and therefore control uh, ground movements, uh, logistic movements during the daytime. It was just simply too dangerous for the Chinese and the North Koreans to move things in the daytime. Right. So the logistics moved at night, and they tried to hide them before the sunrise. And it was up to us to try to find these uh, very well camouflaged uh, locations, uh, always not too far off of roads, and inevitably in the vast tunnel system of the rail system. And knocking those out in the, in the tunnels were very difficult with the weapons that we had then. So this was on a uh, a long range reconnaissance, uh, low level uh, flight. Uh, we would fly uh, anywhere between 1,500 and 2,500 feet, and over time became very uh, capable of picking up the very slightest clue. Our job was to mark the chart. Uh, and if we could uh, make one pass to get something burning uh, and then could continue on the route, come back, debrief with the intelligence officer, and the next strike uh, would uh, try to carrying heavier weapons than we did uh, uh, to take on and destroy the, the targets. Well, at the end of that route, there was uh, out of the valley, and then there was a very high plateau and then that plateau went right to the border between North Korea and China. And as uh, usually, we made our turn before we went up that escarpment. But uh, for some reason, I decided to take a peek over the top. And so I pulled up and went over. And very much to my surprise, on the road leading north out of there, there was an ox cart. And surrounding it were uh, military in uh, white uniforms. This was in the winter, uh, but clearly identified, uh, identifiable, uh, and apparently escorting whatever was in the cart. To me, at that moment, it appeared to be a legitimate military target. Right. So I pulled up, got some altitude, turned on the master arming switch, 
which armed four nose-mounted 20-millimeter cannons. Mm. Every third round was uh, an explosive. Every third round was a tracer. Uh, so you could see where your fire was going. Pushed over and right on target, fired. Now that the disciplined military people heard me by this time and peeled off and were in the ditches off the road, my target uh, was the, the ox cart, then the ox. Before the first rounds hit, I was close enough to now clearly see the target. Uh, it On the target uh, was, uh, first of all, walking close, very close to the cart were civilians. I would estimate maybe four or five of them. Uh, they were not disciplined. They didn't leave the cart. On the cart appeared to be a body uh, wrapped. It was a funeral cortege. And at that moment, the cart, the ox, the civilian family simply disappeared in a blistering uh, bubble of exploding 20-millimeter shells. Um, You can't call them back once you uh, release the, the weapons. Um, but I realized what I had done, and uh, I didn't have time. Uh, I had to get back and report other uh, more important targets, potentially, and so I just simply pulled off the target, feeling rather sad about what I had done. Um, When I came back, of course, you report to to the intelligence officer a debrief, and uh, we would then go up on the bridge and report to the chief of staff. We carried the admiral was uh, the flag was aboard the, the USS Princeton, mm-hmm. and it had happened to be a Sunday flight and Mother's Day, <laughs> and I, I guess that sort of compounded my feelings at that. And I made that comment uh, to the chief of staff, a Navy captain, uh, when I reported what I had had seen and done. And I can't remember what he said, but he got the message, and he knew how I felt. I'm sure he had a comparable experience, maybe more than one in World War II. Right. Uh, uh, I don't know if I ever told uh, Neil this, but I'm willing to share it with you. Please do. Uh, years later, I met uh, Bill Baldwin, uh, who was had come up. He was a dentist. And he found out that when uh, uh, patients who wanted to use uh, amnesia or or, uh, hypnosis rather than um, anesthetics, uh, a drug uh, to deaden them and prepare them for uh, his dentistry work on them, uh, sometimes some odd things would happen. And uh, I heard about this. I was uh, very close to the Institute of Noetic Science at that time. And whenever they, and I still am, whenever they heard of something like this, uh, if they didn't have time or didn't, for some reason, didn't want to check it out, they'd ask me if I would check it out, uh, knowing that uh, when I was uh, involved with the American Psychic uh, Association in New York, uh, I was looking for uh, odd experiences. So I went out and I met Bill. And I said, well, what are you discovering? And he said, well, uh, strange as it seems, 
I have concluded that uh, often, uh, before I start my procedure with them, uh, a voice will come up. The patient will will be the voice, and the the patient he or she seems not to be talking about themselves or something else, like they're channeling an entity that is in possession or at least part of them. And he said, this has been going on for a number of years, and I've got quite a database. Like uh, and, spirit possession? Yes. Uh-huh. And, uh, and, of course, that was very interesting. Now, I, I, I had those clues before, but I wanted to hear him. And I said, well, uh, could you be will- would you be willing to play some tapes? And so he did, and uh, more interesting to me. And Bill, uh, a great example of, of manhood, a, a huge guy, uh, but a great heart. He said, but you know, Scott, you know, listening to other people's tapes uh, is not going to be as powerful as if you go through the experience yourself. Right. And I said, well, what makes you think that I'm carrying somebody along? And he said, I don't know. Why don't we try to find out? Now, I knew I was a very uh, uh, good uh, uh, client for hypnosis. I'd gone through uh, several sessions of that over the years, and Bill was very good in putting, taking me down. And so he simply asked, is there anyone in there? You know, he left me conscious so I could hear what was going on. And to my surprise, I answered the question, but it wasn't me answered. And it was a rather timid little voice, yes. And so Bill said, who are you? And I, I gave a, an oriental name. And, you know, now I was, you know, I was experiencing this. But I'll tell you, Mel, I was a, a, a becoming quite nervous now. So your mouth, your mouth was moving, but it was not you triggering the movement. No, nor was I thinking, okay, I'll answer that, so-and-so. Right. I, I, there was no thought decision-making on my part. I simply had turned over myself to another entity, yeah. and I was vocalizing, uh, you know, responding to Bill's questions. And so Bill asked him, he said, well, do you know where you are? And there was a relatively long pause, you know, three or five seconds. And I said, no. And he said, well, you are uh, involved with someone that you probably don't know. Uh, And he named me. And he said, but where do you come from? And he very quickly said, "Uh, I'm a Korean. And uh, Bill said, what do you remember last from from Korea and he said I was or I said uh, I was walking with my family uh, to a burial site for my grandfather and then pause said that's all I remember and so I, I, I was in shock at, at this point Mel and but Bill stayed with it and and worked him, and he said, would, would you like to join your family again? And I said, yes. And and Bill said, it will be very easy. Just listen to me. Uh, look up and tell me what you see. 
And I said, I see, I see some light. And he said, you know, look deeply into the light. There should be someone there that you recognize. And I said, yes, I see my mother. I was, you know, that voice was getting excited. And Bill said, you know, reach up. And he did. And that's the last we heard from that voice. So this well, this person, this entity, or let's call it a spirit, stayed with you since the Korean yes. War? Yes, since that time. And so, um, so Bill then brought me up, and uh, <laughs> and quite and quite frankly, Mel, I was tearful at that point because I knew exactly what had happened. You know, when I went over that target and I realized that I'd wiped out a family, uh, I just felt like hell. I think as, as any warrior would have, you know, that was a, a, an unfortunate mistake. That was not what we were there to do and certainly not what we intended to do. And at that moment, as, as Bill suggested to me later, uh, that he had not... I mean, this was not an, an unusual experience for him that he had encountered before. I mentioned to him, I said, Bill, I, w I felt so sad about what I saw. And, and Bill said, and at that moment, you opened your heart to a very confused spiritual entity who had been blown out of his physical condition and didn't know what to do or where he was. But you offered a safe haven for him, and he's been with you ever since. That's incredible. And also, if you want to tell us, you were a member of the aviary, and in order for you to be a member of the aviary, you must possess certain skills or attributes, including, let's call it, eagle eye. Your vision was 2015. And was it after this incident that all of a sudden your vision changed in your left eye? Well, uh that happened a number of years ago. Uh, boy, you've done some good, <laughs> good research here, Merrill. I have to. <laughs> okay. Uh, I'll tell that story. Uh, you know, I was on the, the, the classical uh, track as a naval aviator. Uh, I felt that my career depended upon doing well uh, in naval aviation, uh, and I had done well up to that point. Uh, fitness reports had been upper 10%. And uh, I felt that this was really part of my destiny. If I was going to become a senior officer and go through the regular uh, track, you know, ultimately being selected as a commanding uh, executive officer and a commanding officer of a fighter squadron, and then duty aboard a carrier and, and, and so on, duty in the Pentagon, uh, and then be selected for admiral. Uh, or at least be competitive for that. I mean, that was, you know, that's a traditional uh, warrior's path. And so I was on that. And I frankly, uh, th that was the, the dominant thought. I, even though I had some of these other experiences, this was before I had duty in, uh, in Stuttgart and had that experience with the, uh, uh, you know, the, the thought of a prototype peace room. Uh, I was still a junior officer, still a lieutenant. Well, it came time for my annual uh, physical, and I was uh, working. I was the intelligence officer on a carry division staff now, 
I was the guy that got the briefing from aviators that came back, uh, working for um, Bucky Lee, Admiral Lee, a great guy, and uh, anticipating it was time to leave the staff. I'd been there for two years, and so I was ready to go back to the squadron. And I'd put that on my dream sheet for the detailer to know that that's what I wanted to do. And so routinely, it was time for the annual physical. And a few days before that, uh, you know, waking up in the morning, sometimes there's sleep in your eyes, And uh, but I noticed that I was not strictly 2020. I had been 2015 uh, for most of that time, um, and but something was wrong with the left eye. And I asked my wife to check it. She said, well, it looks okay to me. Well, th- that day was my appointment. And so I went in to uh, the clinic, and the corpsman, of course, uh, does all the workup, and he said, all right, Lieutenant, you know, cover cover your left eye and read the chart. Well, it was the, the classical Schnelling eye chart. And every naval aviator that has any wits about him knows the 2020 line, D-E-F-P-O-T-E-C. <laughs> All right. I know it backwards. I can start in the middle and go in either direction. Still, I don't, I don't need it. And so I covered <laughs> the left eye and easily and honestly read D-E-F-P-O-T-E-C. He said, all right, Lieutenant, cover the right eye. Okay. Now, the reason we memorize this is that on occasion, you show up for your physical and you're suffering a hangover. (laughs) And it's utility not to have to worry or to say, oh, my God, through this headache, this is terrible. But nevertheless, you know, D-E-F-P-O-T-E-C and on and keep going, you know. But, you know, my combat experience was uh, we were bounced by MiGs and uh, and had to fight our way out of it. I mean, they had a 100-knot advantage over us and could accelerate at altitude and leave us any time they got in trouble. So what we did, we turned with them, got them down to lower altitude where we had, uh, where our straight wing was an advantage over their swept wing. And, you know, when we would almost get in a position to fire, they would just add the rest of the throttle and leave us. Very frustrating. But the point is, you only survive something like that because you have discipline and that you are the eyeballs for your division for a certain quadrant. And the rest of them have their own assigned sectors and they don't have to worry about the rest of the world because they know that somebody trained in discipline will give a heads up if the threat comes from that direction. I'm sure you get the point. Of course. I could not, in all consciousness, not uh, deny that I had an eye problem. And so I confessed. You know, how could I go back to a squadron and not carry my load? And so I said uh, to the corpsman, I'm having a little problem with the left eye reading the 2020 line and so he didn't expect that either and so he said well you know, how about uh, the 2030 well I could read some of them 2040 although I think they go to the 2050 and I uh, sure I could see that well I think anybody could see that or most anybody and he said lieutenant 
I need to talk to the flight surgeon. So the flight surgeon came in, and I went through a variety of uh, setups, went to the hospital over at uh, Newport. Uh, They looked at it. They could not explain it. There was no physical explanation for it. And so they just called it a latent myopic condition. Well, what it meant was, uh, in my professional life, was that I was no longer capable of flying a fighter as a fighter pilot off of a carrier. I did not have enough time in grade and experience to do that. And so, you know, I was a saddened guy when I came back in, and, and Admiral uh, Lee asked me when I next time I saw him on the bridge, he said, well, Scott, uh, how do things go? He knew I had the physical, and I said, they didn't go well. And he said, what? And uh, now he was a, a World War II carrier pilot. And so I told him, and he said, well, what is the... What do they think it is? He said, they're sure scratching their heads. And uh, he said, well, he said, you're up for uh, a new posting. And he said, you know, Scott, it just so happens that I have my orders. I'm going to be the deputy director of the Bureau of Naval Personnel. Maybe I can help you. And he said, what would you be willing to fly if you can't fly off a carrier? And I said, well, I guess something that's challenging. I said, you know, uh, I guess I would qualify for land-based uh, ASW, uh, P2Vs, uh, and anti-submarine warfare. And he said, eh, well, let's see what we can do. Well, bless his heart. I got my orders uh, uh, two weeks later assigned to a patrol squadron in Jacksonville with a one-year waiver on my eye condition to be reevaluated at that time. Well, clever Admiral Lee knew, uh, as indeed I do, in one year I would qualify uh, as a, a Class II aviator to fly with glasses, which you can do on land-based aircraft. And so that was my next naval assignment. It was challenging. Some very interesting things happened during that time. And, but it kept me flying, uh, which was important for uh, the, the second half of my career uh, when I got in naval intelligence for full time. But I want to understand, I don't mean to interject, but I want to understand, you were Eagle Eye 2015 at one point, and things changed rather quickly, dramatically. Yes. What do you think happened? It seems almost as if a powerful force pushed you to no longer be a fighter pilot for a reason because your progression into peace endeavors would start there. Is that what you well, think happened? If you can stand one more war story, I'll explain it to you. Sure. Um, once again, uh, I got a call from my buddies at the Institute of Noetic Sciences, and they said, you know, we've heard about a guy, uh, an Australian, who is now living in, uh, in Dallas, Texas, and he's in, uh, involved in what he's called uh, reverse speech therapy or reverse speech phenomena. And he said, would you mind checking him out? And I said, well, what is it? Give me more details. So they said, you know, his theory is that in a conversation such as the one we're having right now, Mel. Was that David Oates? Speaking, uh, yeah, David Oates. Okay. Uh, you're speaking from your heart. And I'm speaking from my heart. 
And Oates' theory is that there is a, a simultaneous conversation going on, one at the intellectual level that is voiced, but at the same time, within that voice, what we are speaking normally now, there is another voice that can be heard by someone who is experienced if you play the speech backwards. Right. That was his theory. And so I said, well, that's interesting. I'll be glad to hop over to, to Dallas. I was living in Washington, D.C. at the time. And so I did. And I met David, and I spent two days with him. And now David, is, if you've met him, is a, everybody knows what, what an Aussie is like. Brass, uh, you know, a very aggressive. Well, you know, he was a stereotype Aussie. And, uh, and, and he did the same thing. You know, we uh, intellectualized on this. I, I tried to, to figure it out logically, and uh, he played some wonderful tapes, particularly of his of his youngsters. He had uh, twin uh, kids, and uh, one of them, they were taking a bath. This was back in Australia, and he and his wife were bathing them, and the kids were playing with a little rubber ducky or something, some floating. And uh, and so what you hear is a splashing of water. And one of the kids gets cranky, and uh, and you hear a, a aggressive splashing, and 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 the kid is really <laughs> is really crying because things are not going the way she wants them. And so David said, you know, that's on a tape. And David said, okay, here we're going to put this on reverse, and you will hear a reversal that almost everybody hears because it is so pure. And so he reverses it, and what comes out of it, you know, splashing water sounds very much the same, forward or backwards. You hear that, but then you hear this sweet little voice that says, help me. And I said, play it again. And so he reversed it, and he played it again, and help me. And I said, David... Was that your child saying, help me? And he said, that's what it sounds like to me. And I said, there may be something to this. He said, the only way you're going to find out is to go through it yourself. And I said, this was at the end of the day. I said, let me think about this. And so I thought about that night. And I thought, you know, I can't come all the way here and go away and wonder. I need to know if there's something to this. Right. So the next morning, we started off. I said, David... Let's go. And I told him, I said, uh, you know, I'm not going to tell you what questions you can ask me and what you can't, but I imagine you'll try to take my pants off. And he laughed, and he said, no, I won't ask you if you've been faithful to your wife. And I said, thank you. And so uh, I I had shared a a few of my uh, Navy experiences with him on the first day. And so David said, Scott... Why don't we start and you fly one of the missions that was most meaningful to you? And uh, so I did. And I reflew verbally the same mission that I've already shared with you and your audience. Okay? And David, after he heard that, he stopped and he said, Scott, I'll tell you that I'm experienced enough that I can, on occasion, pick out the reversals when you are talking. And he said, believe me, 
there are some powerful reversals in what you have shared. And I said, all right, let's listen to them. So he ran the tape back, and he turned it on. And, uh, uh, you know, so the, the, the last thing you hear was, you know, the first thing you hear was the last thing. And I ended up by saying, uh, you know, what what Bill had discovered when we when he sent that that young lad to light, and uh, uh, I think I said, oh, then I added something, and I told him, I said, you know, I of course felt like hell uh, when uh, when I realized what had happened. So that was the last thing that I said, and so this was the first reversal embedded in that. And the thing that came out, Mel, absolutely stunned me. What the reversal said, and I had to have uh, David, frankly, to help me. Uh, he heard it very clearly, but eventually, after enough plays, I could hear it myself. And the reversal was, I gave up an eye. You gave up an eye? Yes. Wow. Almost like an eye for an eye. Wow. Yes. You know, and 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 then he, and David said, "Does that mean anything to you?" And I said, "Yes, David, it does." And then I and then I told him the other story of what happened, and uh, and you know he's a smart guy, and very intuitive. And he said, "You know, Scott, I would say that uh, your higher self said, you know, Scott is plowing through, you know." courageously, manfully, and you add your own adjectives because he thinks he's going to be an admiral someday, but he's not going to be an admiral. And we're going to end it right now. And so some smarter part of me <laughs> made a decision and said it will be very simple. He doesn't have to do anything heroic. He just won't be able to read the 2020 line. Incredible, because you really wanted to be an admiral, but when this happened, if it was an ulterior force, it really prevented you from going that way, but then the detour made you who you are today. Absolutely. I think what, what uh, I, would, I would say it a little bit, yes, if I was going to be uh, in the Navy for a full career, I wanted to be at the top of the ladder. Sure. But I think I knew at another more important level that that isn't really what I wanted to do, that this Navy stuff was an apprenticeship for really why I was here on Earth, and it was peace, not war. There was another word that came out from that reverse speech session, if we can call it that way, Dick Cheney and Simone. Did something like that happen? <laughs> well... <laughs> Yeah, David pulled that out. Uh, that's an interesting, another interesting story. Well, first of all, Dick Cheney. Uh, I had known Dick for a number of years before he came back to Washington and became uh, first Secretary of Defense and then uh, later Vice President. I knew him after he had been the Chief of Staff for, uh, for President Ford. Now, I was out of the Navy, retired, and was teaching. I was teaching in Casper, Wyoming. Uh, for the uh, for the Casper uh, College uh, univer uh, Junior College, and uh, the University of Wyoming had brought a upper division junior and senior curriculum at Casper, and I was teaching in that also political science international relations. 
and I had I had earned my PhD uh, by this time by going to night school whenever the Navy would send me back uh, to Washington D.C. Mm-hmm. and. Uh, uh, so I was, I think, qualified to, to teach, uh, and uh, my last Navy assignment was at the University of Kansas as executive officer and then, uh, for a short time, commanding officer of the uh, NROTC unit there. And uh, so while I didn't have to teach, the exact, uh, usually didn't teach at all, um, I volunteered to teach for the uh, political science division at the university just to get some teaching experience, because I wanted to teach. And uh, it was a freebie uh, from uh, from me, and they were glad to give me uh, as many freshman classes as I wanted, and then let me uh, develop uh, some graduate-level classes also. And so I, I, I got the job uh, at Casper, and uh, met Dick Cheney when he came back, and uh, met the family. His kids and my kids were... Uh, same ages then, and we socialized together. Dick is smart, and I got a call from him one uh, one afternoon. I was at the school, and he said, Scott, will you come over to the house tonight, and there's something I want to talk about. And I said, sure. And so I went over there, and there were three or four other guys that I knew. Um, two of us were from the, the college, the campus, and the other two were, were business people uh, that I knew in town. And he said, uh, I'm thinking of uh, running for the, uh, to be the, the state's one representative in the House of Representatives. And uh, we said, well, that's interesting. And he said, yeah, I think I have something to offer them. And uh, I guess uh, he had come back and he wanted again in uh, private practice as a, um, in, uh, as a, I'm not sure whether it would be prize or join a firm uh, involved in giving economic advice. Okay. Uh, I, I don't know if that was didn't work out or he tried it and he really wasn't happy with that. So he he was a politician, and so he decided to try to get back to Washington. And he said, I would like uh, a kitchen cabinet, and you're the guys that I want you uh, to, to be that cabinet uh, to keep me honest and that. Uh, helped me out in one way or another, and uh, so we talked about that, and, and you know, he asked us each individually, are you interested? Would you be willing to do it? And when it was my turn, I said, well, Dick, yeah. I said, this is uh, it'll be an interesting experience for me. I said, um, but frankly, uh, I know you're going to run on the Republican ticket, and I said, uh, and occasionally I do vote Republican, but not always. I vote for the person. And he gave me a hard look like, uh, that's that's not good politics. <laughs> Make up your mind, you know, are you a Democrat, are you a Republican? Uh, and uh, But he didn't say that. But I got the view, you know. Sure. And I said, but if you understand that, if that doesn't disqualify me. And he said, well, I assume that if you agree to do that, it's because you think I would be a good candidate. I said, I most, most certainly do that. And so... Uh, we did. We worked, and uh, he was well into the campaign. And uh, his wife called me one night, uh, in a real stressed-out voice, and she said, "Scott, we're in Laramie, and Dick has had a heart attack." And I said, "Good grief! How is he?" And she said, "Well, we got him to the hospital in time, and and 
uh, it was a warning. The doctors tell him if he'll behave himself, change his diet, exercise, watch his weight, and uh, that he probably will live a number of additional years. How many more heart attacks has he had? Yeah, well, that was the first one he had. That was the first one he had. And and she said, but I'm afraid uh, this knocks us out of the... This was the primary. And I said, well, let's see. And she said, what can you... What do you think you can do? And I said, no, I don't know. Uh, but let me think about it. We'll do something. So what I did after that call, I said, tell me honestly what his doctor said. And so she said, I just told you. And I said, I want to hear it again. And the doctors told Dick this. And I said, okay, I can say that. And the doctors, if he's ever asked, will I say, yeah, that's what I told him. She said, yeah. She said, you have something in mind. I said, yes, I do. So I wrote a letter that, that night uh, to the editor of the Casper Tribune. Casper is more or less in the center of the state, and it's the only newspaper with a statewide circulation. And I delivered my letter in, in hand to the editor, who I knew, uh, the next morning. And it was a very simple little letter. And I said, you know, uh, getting qualified people uh, to work for uh, uh public office to, to go through the, the trials, the tribulations, and the hard work of, of a campaign is hard. And uh, it is unfortunate that one of the most qualified has had a temporary setback uh, because the newspaper carried it that morning. Um, and I said, uh, but I am told that Dick was told that if, and I gave the, the doctor's uh, estimate of the situation, I said, it will be interesting to find out if the supporters for Dick stay with him at this point. And I signed, I didn't say, and I hope they do or anything else. I just signed it as Scott Jones, uh, instructor, Casper College, associate professor, University of Wyoming at Casper. And uh, so then we waited. And uh, only a week later, you know, and the, the test is, does the money still come in? And it did. There was hardly a dip. And so they knew that Dick was still alive. And Dick ran, he won, and the, whatever Republican won the nomination, uh, you know, was a shoe-in to win the, the general election. And so Dick then went to Washington, D.C. Well, I did, too. Uh, uh, that, uh, I had another mystical experience, and I ended up uh, telling the, the president that I essentially had been called to return to Washington. And uh, he said, Scott, you're breaking my heart, but uh, if that's where you need to be, you know, Godspeed. And so Dick and I reconnected uh, in Washington, D.C., and, you know, exchanged dinners, and the family still uh, met and uh, enjoyed each other's. And uh, so that was the reason I'm going through all this detail, Mel, is that Dick and I had a strong personal relationship at, uh, still at that point. Then um, I was offered a job by Pell. 
uh, a dominant Democratic <laughs> stalwart. Okay, and I had very little reason to continue communication with with Dick. He was now the Secretary of Defense, and I got a call from David Oates. I was on Pell's staff at my little private office. And David called, and he said, Scott, this was at the beginning of the first Iraqi war. And he said, I have been taping and doing a reverse speech analysis of, of President, uh, of the President, of the of Secretary of State, and of the Secretary of Defense. And in... So Bush, Baker, and Cheney. Yeah. Okay. And he said, and uh, and in each of them, in reverses, I hear the same word. And I said, well, what do you hear, David? He said, uh, it sounds like a, a French name, uh, Simone. And uh, he said, what do you think that means? And of course, I immediately was thinking what David was thinking, that it had some significance. Uh, to the operation that was being planned. Desert Storm? Yeah, no, that's right. And, uh, and and David came out and he said, do you think that's a, a code word for, for some military secret or operation? I said, I don't know, David. And I didn't know, but I was concerned that it was. And um, I said, what are you going to do with it? He said, oh, I'm going to put it in my newsletter. And uh, I said, well, what sort of a mailing do you have? He said, oh, I don't know, a couple hundred. I said, okay. And uh, he said, do you think I should do that? And I said, David, I can't give you any advice because I don't know what the word means. Well, I was concerned about what it meant. So I just turned to my computer and typed out a letter uh, to Dick uh, as Secretary of Defense. And I said, Dick, uh, in a... uh, a human technology that you've never heard about called reverse speech therapy. Uh, what you and Baker and the president are saying uh, when you are speechifying about what appears to be a pending uh, military operation in Iraq, a word that sounds like uh, the, the French name, uh, and, and I you know, spelled uh, uh, the, the name, uh, Simone uh, comes out. I said, in the in the possibility that this has some military or security significant, the guy who has discovered this is going to go public with it. This is a heads up. Now, uh, you know, sincerely, Scott, and I went and I sent it to my printer, which was on the other side of the room. Well, you know, all senior staffers write letters for the boss. And when I went over there, you know, I had forgotten, and what queued up was his stationery. Well, you know, staffers don't use the boss stationery. <laughs> but I thought, <laughs> not quite innocently, this is going to have to take, have to go through a number of spear holders to get to Cheney. So I'll just leave it on there. Poor decision. And uh, what I did right was to put a stamp in, on it instead of using the Frank and mailed it. Well, two days later, I got a telephone call. And I can't remember his name, so I'll use a, a makeup date. And he said, uh, 
uh, is this Dr. Jones? And I said, yes, it is. And he said, well, this is Bill Smith. And he gave the call for a TV station in Providence, Rhode Island. And I said, well, how are you today? And he said, I'm just fine. He said, what do you know about reverse speech therapy? (laughs) And I said, well, a little bit. What do you know about it? He said, not much. I said, you didn't give much details in your letter to uh, Secretary Cheney. And I said, "Uh, what letter to Secretary Cheney? And he said, Dr. Jones, it's all over Providence. Every media has a copy of it. And so I felt a stab in my back <laughs> from my former friend, Dick Cheney. Uh-huh. And, uh, and of course, I felt uh, dumb. Why? Why did this happen? Yeah. And, uh, you know, uh, at least I could have put it on my own <laughs> stationery and not got uh, my boss personally involved in it. Mm-hmm. And so, and I was the first one to hear it. And so I immediately called the chief of staff, and I said, Bill, I've stepped in it. And he said, what? And I said, uh, he said, come on up. And so I went up. My my office was uh, separate from the, the suite. Uh, it was in the basement uh, of the Russell Senate office building. So I went up there and called him, and, he's, and he said, uh, He said, well, I wish you hadn't done that. And I said, Bill, not as much as I wish I hadn't done that. And he just gave me a hard look. And uh, he said, well, let's go tell the boss. And so we went over. And uh, now what makes this critical was that for the first time, uh, uh, Pell was up for re-election, okay? And the person who was running against him was a very popular Republican, Claudine Schneider. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, she was as popular with her team as Pell was with his team. Okay? And uh, so it was, uh, you know, Pell was favored to win, but for the first time he had a real legitimate qualified opposition um, opponent. And so I had a, a, a scheduled trip to China. Uh, in, uh, I think it was in, in a week. Uh, Pell was sending me over there for what I did for him. And so they said, uh, okay, here's what we're going to do, Scott. We're going to set up uh, an interview with a newsman, uh, one who we know and knows us well. He's one of our favorites. And he will do an honest job with you. And uh, you do an honest job with him. You tell him the facts, and then you don't talk to anybody else about this. You go on vacation, go home, and then go to China, (laughs) and let's see if this blows over. And so we did that, and uh, it appeared in the Providence Journal, and uh, other people tried to get a hold of me. They got my uh, home phone, and and my wife answered the phone. Uh, Well, he's on... uh, on a trip now, lying, but uh, I soon would be. And when I was in China, um, this was an extraordinary visit this time. I had gone there before uh, for Pal, but they had uh, the the, uh, uh, the 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 group, and I'm blocking on their name right now, uh, that I was working with in China, uh, the Institute of, of Somatic Sciences. 
um, they had brought in from all over China the leading Qigong masters. And so I spent uh, two days with these guys, and oh, boy, that was a that was a thrill. <laughs> boy, they they can really do some wonderful things. Sure. And uh, at the end of the of the of the visit, uh, my host, uh, the president of the institute, said, "Look, here are three books in Chinese that, uh, particularly this particular one, that is the latest published results of our work in Qigong." We want this published in English and so that people can know the work that we're doing here and the progress we're making. Will you please do that for us? I said, well, I'll try to. So I took the three books back, and he had given me the name of the book in English, and I had written it uh, in my notes. And so when I came back, uh, first of all, well, before I left, in the week before I left, uh, I would get a call from time to time from the chief of staff or the senator. Uh, they knew how badly I felt. And uh, one call, from, I was at home, and one call I got from, from Pell, uh, he said, well, we, the poll numbers are in. They were polling daily to see how they were doing. And I said, well, uh, what are the numbers, senators? And he said, well, there was only a one-point one swing. I said, well, that's not too bad. Actually, he said it was very good. I went up a point. And I said, well, that's great. I said, now, Senator, if you had gone down a point, I would have been given the blame. Uh, since you went up a point, do I get credit? He said, <laughs> you don't. <laughs> well, okay, so, but things had sort of cooled down uh, because it was not even a bump in the road. Uh, it didn't really affect uh, the the campaign um, uh, one way or the other. And, and he won, okay, won the election later. Well, when I came back, uh, there's, I had a lot of stuff to dig through, and then I remembered the promise I'd made to my Chinese buddies. But then I looked at the three books, and I couldn't remember which one I had promised to get translated, if I could. Um, but I did remember, you know, what it was in English. So I called over to the Library of Congress, the uh, the Far East office, and I said, look, I've got uh, three Chinese books, uh, books in China, then Chinese. I said, if I bring the dust covers over, well, will you translate them for me? And they said, sure, come on over. And so at noontime I went over and uh, carried those. And as I walked in uh, to that building, I looked at the 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 media board uh, that uh, you know that showed what where the offices were and i i was very familiar with there with the building and i realized i was going to go by the middle east office to get to the to the far east office and mel just on a hunch i i stopped by that office i went in now everybody was gone except one guy and by his looks i assumed that he was a middle eastern uh, origin himself walked up, introduced myself, and I said, you know, I've heard a word that may be Arabic, and I wonder if you could translate it for me. And he smiled and said, I think I can handle that. What's the word? And I said, well, I've only heard it. I've never seen it. Um, But the way it was uh, uh, spoken to me uh, was Simone. And he said, well, that's not Arabic. That's undoubtedly French. He said, Perhaps it is 
a simoon? And I said, it may well be. Uh, we've only heard it. And I didn't tell him under what conditions. I said, well, what, does, what is uh, simoon? He said, oh, that's a hot desert storm. And uh, as you and uh, uh, your intelligent listening uh, audience knows, that was the code word for the operational phase of the first war in Iraq. From August of 90 through January of 91, right? Right, yeah. And so, you know, I wrote that up and sent a memo over to the boss, and he sent it back, and he said, Scott, are we ever going to understand how this stuff works? And uh, so I, en- I endorsed it, and I said, well, you know, the, the, the answer is yes, someday, but the problem is we don't know what the stuff is. <laughs> we don't know the, the mechanisms so that we can get a handle on, okay, how do we attack that? And I said, but we're working on it, boss, and you're doing, uh, and you're key in that uh, because we're finding out what's going on in the principal research uh, countries of the world, in the Soviet Union and in China. And, and Scott, that's what I did for him for six years. We have to take our one and only break, but there's so much more to discuss with you. I, I see something here that says that you have been involved with the visiting others. And when we come back, I need you to explain that term. By the way, this is a term given to you by somebody, a woman, and you'll tell us all about her. You have been involved with this for over 80 years, and you say, quote, they intervened when I was an infant, dying from phenomena, and apparently decided to make an investment in me for later service, unquote. When we come back, we're going to discuss flying saucers, later called UFOs, of course, the, the visitation, the, all the information that you have gotten now, you're starting to remember. You haven't remembered 100%, and perhaps that, that will be the time that you may leave your physical body in the future. So we're privileged to have you here. But tell us how to get in touch with your work. How do people learn more about peace and all the... the uh, things you're, you're involved with? Well, uh, really what I'd like people to, to be interested in, uh, this old stuff may be of interest to them, but it's the new stuff, uh, Mel, that I'd like to have them take a look at. And sure. uh, the obvious and easy way is to access uh, the website, uh, which is the normal protocol, www.peaceroom, P-E-A-C-E-R-O-O-M.com. And it's all in there. And folks, don't go anywhere. We have so much more to discuss with that Dr. C.B. Scott Jones. This is Mel Fabregas, and you are listening to Veritas. Don't go anywhere. Thank you very much for listening. We're going to talk more with our special guest in our members section. If you're not a member, just head on over to our website, veritasshow.com, and click on the subscribe link to listen to the rest of the show. As a member, have you subscribed to the iTunes link? Let iTunes download all segments of each new show automatically. There's a link in the members section. Just click on it and let iTunes do the rest. We'll take a short intermission, listen to some music, and we'll be right back with more. Enjoy.
stop Wake up where the clouds are far behind Be where trouble melts like lemon drops High above the chimney top That's where you find me This is Cliff High, and you're listening to Veritas. Mm-hmm. 